One of today's snazzy sponsors is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. Move, manage, and secure Active Directory, Office 365, and much more. Visit quest.com slash datanotspod to find out more. Quest.com slash datanotspod. Hello, IT architect, business person here. We have this huge new project for you. We have an idea for this new system that's going to make us all sorts of money. It can never go down because it's going to be so important, and it's got to be super secure too, obviously, and your budget is $3. Right, uh, okay, that's a, that's a silly scenario, but it represents a problem that many of us in IT face. The organization needs a technology solution to a business problem. There are objectives, and there are constraints. So how do you design the solution? And if your answer was, on a napkin at the bar... Yeah, that's not a bad idea, but we're going to discuss a more formal approach today on the Data Knots Podcast. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Chris Wall, and we joined my networking transporter with his virtualization rocket to make a spaceship exploring the ever-changing infrastructure universe together as the Datanauts. Since 2015, Datanauts has been a part of the Packet Pushers network of podcasts for information technology professionals, and you can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. Our guest today to have this design discussion is Adam Post. Adam, welcome to the Datanauts podcast, and in a sentence or two, would you tell the nice people listening who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Adam Post. I'm a principal consultant at IT Partners, a solutions provider based out of the Phoenix area. Uh, my focus areas are really virtualization and cloud technologies, uh, specifically those from VMware and AWS. But more broadly, um, there seems to be an industry trend toward developing into more of a multi-domain or hybrid architect. And that's kind of the path I've been traveling down for the past few years. Yeah, you want a lot of people where it's not just what's in your data center anymore, it's in what's in your data center and then what's up in the cloud as well. Is that what you mean by hybrid? Right. And it still feels like kind of new territory at times and that there isn't a single all-encompassing approach available. And it's kind of left to you as the practitioner to find the best path forward. So I was hoping the things we're going to talk about today will be useful to those others in, the, in similar situations. I was thinking hybrid architect was like one fueled by gasoline and electric. <laughs> Leave it to marketing. I'm sure <laughs> we can get there. Yeah. Give it time. <laughs> so Adam, let's start out the design discussion with a, uh, with a straightforward question. Why is a design process uh, important and, and what makes for a good design? So I think to have appreciation for design process in general, it's helpful to think about what can occur in the absence of one. So without a structured design process, I think it becomes too easy to jump to conclusions and make hasty decisions, especially on the technical side that may have consequences later. Um, as an example, we might look at our customers' requirements and for the ease of math, we might say they have 100 virtual machines and 10 terabytes of data and jump to the conclusion that HCI might be a good solution for them. Well, later on, we might find out that our storage ends up scaling much more quickly than our compute requirements. We've made a bad decision that now we need to work backward and, and attempt to account for. Um, another example of a hasty decision might be, hey, our, our developer needs a, a database. Um, uh, Amazon RDS instance sounds like it might be a good fit. We end up later finding out that the, uh, the DBA requires OS-level access to this database instance, and really what would have been a better fit was something self-hosted on EC2 instance. These are the types of things that a real information gathering phase as part of a design process that will help avoid. Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way in, in the sense that I've worked on a lot of projects and sometimes engineers just jump in with the thing that they think is the answer because it's what they're familiar with. And the design discussion doesn't get much further than this is what I know and I'm going to make it apply to this situation, even if that isn't the case. And you end up with a lot of the challenges that you were just describing. Right. And one of the key features of a design process is that it typically has an explicit assessment and information gathering phase, right? This is where we bring in our stakeholders within the organization, and we use them as a high priority source of input for the design. And these would be people like executives, application owners, IT support personnel, um, end users themselves. All of those people can give us uh, success criteria for the solution we're designing and give us something to measure our work against. Really, without this information, it can be difficult to prove that 
what we're actually providing is a, is a good design. Now, without this information, of course, it could be difficult to prove that. And another unfortunate outcome is that whatever we end up designing and implementing can suffer from a lack of buy-in or acceptance within the organization if we don't consult with uh, the stakeholders and incorporate what we've learned and, and use the information provided as a basis for uh, designing the solution. If we end up getting a negative outcome, I feel like that's justifiable, right? The, they're the end customer. They're the person using the, the solution. And whether it's the internal architecture department or the outside partner who, who took that approach, your reputation is going to uh, take a hit and deservedly so. It'd be like Ethan designing uh, a, a, for me to use all Macintosh and Apple stuff, and I would I would hate him very much for that. So <laughs> there would be no buy-in from my side. I mean, it's a little ton in cheek, but also you you get it right. You have certain things that you kind of want to be in there, and if you don't feel like your voice is at least heard, whether or not the decision made aligns to what you want or not, then yeah, you're going to be kind of gritty, kind of sandy about it. Makes sense, right? So we've kind of talked about what a design process does and why it's important, but what actually constitutes a good design? I think uh, a good design is one that finds a way to meet the requirements of the business that we've identified while working within the constraints that are present and avoiding some of the identified risks, um, which we'll talk a bit more uh, about later, but it's really about threading that needle and finding a way to bring about that positive outcome. Yeah, constraints is just a huge element to this because a lot of engineers may get frustrated that the design isn't the idealized thing that they want, but say a constraint is budget and you can't afford to build the Cadillac. You have to compromise in some way. Constraints drive you to what that good design is for this particular situation. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the optimal technical design, but it means it's the best design given these constraints, whatever those constraints might be. Right. But also, I think we're assuming that folks listening in have gone through this process. And, and I've certainly heard anecdotally a lot of people saying, well, there is no design. It's just do the things and then pay down the technical debt later, if at all. Let's play that out then. Let's talk about the ways that the design process actually occurs, You know what that looks like, what it feels like. And we can say, you know, maybe start small scale, relatively immature as a company, and then maybe talk about it after that point as to a more mature and large scale type environment. Okay. So if we start, let's say scenario one, we have a small, uh, a small business with only 50 employees. Um, the infrastructure requirements within that organization may not be all that significant and their requirements can probably be met in a number of different ways. So you may get lucky. Uh, you may not experience negative results by just jumping toward a physical solution and saying this might work. So the, the, the benefits of a thorough time intensive design process, I'm not sure are fully evident at a certain small scale, but it's really where we start to work into other scenarios where we're working with more, uh, more complex infrastructure with a more significant footprint uh, where we start to see the real benefits of the design process in my mind. So in our second scenario, let's talk about maybe a medium-sized enterprise with 100 to 1,000 <clears throat> users within the organization, no dedicated enterprise architecture resources within the organization, some existing processes governing how design should take place, and maybe some loose documentation standards on how that actual documentation uh, should look. So let's say for this example, we're the technical architect working for an outside partner and we've been engaged for maybe this specific pro uh, project. We can bring our existing design process and documentation that we've used successfully with other customers because we've built a business around doing this repeatedly with customer after customer. So in this scenario, we're bringing the structure and the process and the expertise and helping the customer uh, achieve the de desired outcome because we have that experience where they may not. And ultimately, I think the opportunity to make improvements here um, and ha have a positive impact on the organization is maybe highest at this level because you have more influence on what the process and deliverables look like. Also, just based on my experience, these, this size of organization has a pretty significant overall infrastructure footprint. I mean, we're still dealing with millions of dollars of infrastructure here, potentially multiple sites. Um, so the complexity and the footprint is there, but 
there are resource constraints and pro and a level of maturity that may not be present governing how this should go. This is where you can step in and play a positive impact when, um, when trying to institute a more structured design process. Now, as we move into even larger enterprises, we can look at this from a bit of a different way, right? A large enterprise might be a uh, thousand plus users with a dedicated enterprise architecture department, uh, mature processes and rigid standards when it comes to how documentation should look. So as let's say you're one architect on the total team of technical architects employed by this organization, uh, you might contribute just your technical design using the, those existing standards. And what you're doing is essentially feeding your design into the machine that is that existing process. What happens after that point is not really fully in, in your control because a lot of this is managed outside of you. So mm -hmm. the opportunity for the individual contributor to drive some of these improvements to design and make a positive impact is a little bit lower here because it may not be needed. These are organizations that may have a higher likelihood of having their act together, so to speak. It's really that middle zone and kind of the second scenario where I've seen the greatest potential for improvement because of the overall size of the infrastructure and the inconsistency with which I'm seeing design and good design documentation created. I guess as scale changes, potentially your impact on the overall strategy of the design changes. You may be, you're saying kind of in the middle tier and even the low tier, you're kind of the alpha and the omega of design because they don't have dedicated resources. And then as you get to these larger scale environments, maybe you're just working with one business unit or one segment of the environment and trying to stitch it into their plans. Correct. Adam, talk to me about hybrid environments, because that came up in the intro that you're now working in both worlds, cloud and uh, let's call them local data centers. And now you've got applications that might be deployed in, in both of those environments at once. What is it about that scenario, that hybrid environment that makes design uh, even more critical? I think the fact that leveraging a hybrid style environment increases the overall technical and operational complexity of the solution. So ultimately, there are more variables to consider during the design process because we're dealing with a number of additional technologies that we wouldn't otherwise be dealing with. Other factors might be which applications should be located where, where are our users in relation to those locations? Which of the many technologies in the available portfolio do we uh, integrate into our design? What type of communication do we need between our environments uh, so that things can operate uh, successfully? Um, another challenge can be that if some of our design responsibilities are distributed between multiple individuals, I mean, that's always a source of potential clashes of dogma, right? A data center person might have one way of doing things cloud architect might see things in a completely different lens. If you're approaching this as one individual, you have the opportunity to kind of synthesize the available design guidance and come up with a more unified approach, or at least that's my read on the situation. You hit on a, that personnel issue, people looking at things through different lenses. One of the things we've talked about in Datanauts historically is when you get involved with cloud technologies, the way you did it you don't just take the way you did it in your local data center when you had your uh, hands in VMware, let's say, and then replicate that in the cloud. That probably isn't the right way to do it, either for cost reasons or efficiency reasons or redundancy reasons. And you need to relearn things in the cloud. So when we've got this hybrid environment, is this is this a chance for these two kinds of practitioners to, to, to get their heads together? Or maybe do, do they have to get their heads together for the design to come off right? Well, it's, it, it's always a great thing if, if that can happen. And at Data Nods, you guys are always talking about busting silos. And when we're talking about hybrid environments, bringing together the traditional data center and the cloud, I believe that's another silo that is just waiting to be busted. And I think that will continue to happen as things progress. You might see um, data center architecture and cloud architecture start to be merged and managed under the same team because really... Uh, unless we're talking about application architecture, we're still dealing with infrastructure components. So, so the things themselves aren't all that different, although the way, uh, the way we need to operate the, the solutions themselves may, may, be, may be slightly different. Well, here's my thoughts on this. Having a design process to follow, it, it significantly increases your chance of success. Something I've got pinned to my Twitter for, for a while now is that you know, the, the best engineers and architects, they spend 90% of the time, all the planning, the design, you know, the thinking, 
that goes into building a really well-crafted architecture, and then maybe 10% or so in implementation. And this may be cyclical or iterative or just linear, right? But the goal is that you want to weed out complexity and you want to identify risk and remediate as much as you can because the goal is to craft something elegantly simple, and, and that's hard. And I think you have to think about it. Ethan, what's on your mind? Dude, my corollary point, it, it dovetails right in with what you're saying, and that is information gathering is absolutely crucial. You got to ask the right questions and you have to listen to the answers you get back. A lot of engineers, they suck at listening. They do not, they because they already know or they think they know the answer or they have a particular answer they want to hear, and that's all they hear. They don't actually listen to the answers, but you've got to listen to uh, effectively gather that information. Then you got to understand how that information impacts your design and then be able to to communicate that up and down the stack of humans that are going to be involved in this whole thing and going right back to your point all of that is the the planning that helps make the end project a success as opposed to winging it getting halfway through the project and then going oh i didn't think of that because you blew your information gathering information gathering is absolutely crucial sorts of design considerations, different scale, and the, I guess, the hybrid architect, which I love that term. Let's go into design guidance and talk about different design processes as they relate to things like virtualization and cloud. So Adam, I want to kick things off with talking around the, uh, something we had talked about earlier, the VMware recommended design process. So define what that is and what's the purpose of that in the world? So really, if we break down the VMware recommended design process, it breaks down into three primary phases. So first is the conceptual design, where we bring in our stakeholders and identify the requirements, constraints, assumptions, and, and risks that will influence our design. Um, this is formed typically through direct assessment of the existing environment, uh, interviews with the various stakeholder groups in the organization, which we've touched on. Once that's uh, in place and solid and has been signed off upon, we start to move into the logical design uh, where we create a generic representation of the solution that we're proposing and the and we define the relationship between the primary components and the solution, uh, being sure to avoid any specific uh, references to certain technologies because at, as this at this point, they're not really important. So with the logical design in place, we then transition into the physical design where we begin prescribing the specific technologies and configurations that will ultimately support our logical design and our requirements. So I think the practical purpose here is to ensure that we have fully considered each area of the design and that our decisions, the ones that we make, actually support the defined requirements and that the project is successful. Um, stepping back a bit, it also kind of has an off-label use as, I believe, a generic design approach when working with some other technologies that don't have specific design uh, process guidance because it's really technology agnostic. What about uh, conceptual, logical, physical uh, refers to VMware. It's really a very useful generic design approach that I believe can be employed in a number of different ways. And once you have that knowledge, um, feel free to use it. Agreed. It's a it's a good way of approaching a problem and thinking about it. And I think that um, I don't know. Maybe your opinion differs, but I've definitely seen a lot of people struggle with the conceptual design, uh, especially how do you look at you know your functional requirements and all that kind of jazz. And maybe you can help dig a little bit deeper into. Well, we'll just start with how do you categorize the requirements for a conceptual design. So this is done in two ways. So first we have our functional requirements, and this is really what, what is the business goal the solution is going to help accomplish. Uh, as technical people, it can be easy to jump in and start thinking about levels of availability or total IOPS delivered, but the business doesn't really care about that. So an example of a good functional requirement for um, I, I think would be we might be supporting the initial rollout of new application X or supporting its expansion into a new region of the world. We're not talking about technologies, we're talking about the business strategy here, and that's gonna be highest on our list of priorities. And a lot of our decisions are gonna link back to that because that's the, the thing that we're ultimately looking to support uh, as far as the business strategy goes. That's like, that's why they're cutting checks and paying you, is like, this is the thing we want to do, <laughs> we wanna expand or, or you know, do these things to entertain, delight, attract, you know, gain more customers. And we don't know technology, but we know we want this expansion. Go do it, right? Exactly. 
Okay. Now, once we have that well-defined and we have a good understanding of that, we can move into our non-functional requirements, which is uh, really, these are based more in the technical domain and will be things most of us are familiar with. So these govern how the system must behave. As an example of this, we might say that the underlying infrastructure supporting application X uh, should, it should support at least four nines of availability for the application that is running on it. And that's going to be our SLA. Um, another example of this might be in the event of, let's say, data loss, uh, application X should be fully recovered within four hours, and that'll be our RTO, with no more of one, uh, one hour of data loss, that being our RPO. These are the technical parameters that we're designing around, and these things will have a great impact on the technologies that we choose within the design and actually how we go about configuring them. There's also another important category here within non-functional requirements, and those are the performance-related uh, criteria. So like uh, total user-supported, transactions per second, um, latency, etc. I, I just want to point out that not every design is going to contain these because not every customer knows exactly what these requirements are. If you do have this information, it's, it's good to be able to target that, but just know that if you don't have this information, I've still seen plenty of examples where a design works out well without thoroughly defining every single aspect of how something should perform. Because ultimately, you have, you have to prove that your design met these criteria, and that's an additional burden as well. Now, Adam, we've been talking about uh, uh, three high-level categories in our design here, conceptual, logical, and physical. And you just mentioned, we were really just talking through conceptual there, correct? Functional, non-functional, and so on. I just want to make sure I got that right so we've got context. Right. So all of these items related to the requirements that I was talking about, all of these are within the conceptual design solely. So our technical decisions later on and other aspects of the design are going to be the things that support these requirements. So let's move on to the logical design then. What is that and why does it matter? So the logical design, I touched on this a bit, but it's a generic representation of the solution that kind of shows at a high level uh, what the primary components are that we're proposing, the relationships between them, and how they relate to the documented requirements. This is typically represented in two ways, right? We have our decision tables that show what the decision area is, the decision that that we're making as well as the justification for that decision. And it will also be represented in the form of a logical diagram showing uh, maybe generic shapes and linkage between them. Well, okay. So just, it does not have specific software and, and, and bandwidth and other things. It, it is, it's an abstraction of a design that is meant to meet the conceptual requirements, but doesn't get too into the weeds on specific implementation details. Exactly. Uh, by, by forcing us to represent our thoughts and our decisions in a more generic way, uh, it, it forces us to, uh, I know it helps us to keep from getting lost in the technical weeds. And it allows us to uh, ensure that we're focusing only on how we're meeting our, our requirements generically with these, uh, with these components. So conceptual, this is what we want to do at a high level. This is kind of more the business way of uh, defining the problem. Logical, okay, here in a generic way is how we're going to meet those uh, conceptual requirements that have been laid out before us. Is that correct? Right. So, so let me give you an example of this. Uh, a good example of, well, a good characteristic of a logical design is that it's going to be reusable and, it, and that it can stand the test of time. So I think our, our trusty three-tier application architecture is a good example here. So we might have a load-balanced web front-end, um, an application tier that is scaled horizontally, and a highly available database on the back-end. Uh, the, the number of technologies deployed within that stack may vary. It could be Windows Server 2008 R2, or it could be 2016. But the bottom line is that is still a usable and valid logical design to this day. Um, so I think that's a good way of thinking about how logical design um, exists aside from the specific technology and how it might survive uh, throughout several technical um, iterations of the design. Do you ever have pushback on some of the conceptual or, or maybe more specifically the logical designs that you come up with and tips on how you can, you know, pr provide some importance on justifying those decisions to help kind of persuade those not to, not to feel gritty and sandy when you propose these sorts of things? 
<laughs> well, I think simply by going ahead and justifying your design decisions, you bypass a lot of that pushback you might receive because, well, it, you're, you're, it gives you a direct way to incorporate that feedback into your justifications. And it really forces you uh, as the architect to, on a per decision basis, um, think granularly about how each of your architectural and configuration decisions either does or does not support the defined requirements. So the, the takeaway here is that there should be a clear reason for doing most everything. If you're in the habit of doing things just because that's how they've been done or because a vendor recommended doing so, uh, this is a, a practice that will help get you out of that habit and get you in the rhythm of um, of good design thinking. Hmm. Okay, so we've got the conceptual design, we've got the logical design, we're able to justify the logical design, or or we should be able to justify it if we've done the logical design correctly and can answer all of those questions about why we designed it this way. So now we need to move to the physical design. Um so first of all, can you can you highlight the difference between the logical and the physical design for people who maybe have that muddled and then uh, then get into what a physical design actually looks like? Sure. I'd say the primary difference between a logical and physical design is the level of specificity when it comes to talking about the technologies that we've chosen. Um, a good example of how to visualize this might be just to compare how a logical and physical diagram might look like. Um, a logical diagram, we might have some generic shapes showing how multiple hosts connect through a fabric to a generic dual controller array, right? This is just a generic representation. If we look at a physical diagram of the same solution, we might see stencils based on pictures of what those objects actually look like with uh, the exact connectivity approach being used, the port speeds involved, the fabric technology, et cetera. So I think if we compare it from that perspective, it becomes... Um, easy, at least within the, the context of uh, the data center, to visualize how the logical and physical designs may be different. Now, it doesn't always relate to how something looks physically, though. So if we, if we think about how a cloud design comes together, we can't represent any of these things physically. So here's where we're going to rely on the rule of thumb um, that the physical design is going to contain references to specific technologies, versions, addresses, uh, et cetera. So in the logical design, we might say that we're leveraging some sort of load balancer between tiers in our application. In our physical design, we might have a generic shape representing a virtual F5 load balancing appliance. Now, the shape itself, how we're representing that graphically, it doesn't look like a physical object, but it's about the physical detail. We're saying were you, wh which specific technology we're using um, to meet the requirements that we've defined. In this example, a virtual F5 load balancer. We're stating the vendor, uh, et cetera. So that would fall under the category of physical design. Now, do the logical and physical designs have roles in other parts of the IT group. So for example, if the physical design is, you know, is ratified as this is the actual expression of what the logical design was, uh, was suggesting, do we hand the physical design down to an engineering team and now they're going to implement it? That's a great point, Ethan. So yes, the, a good way to go about looking at the physical design is this is what your implementation engineer is going to run with when implementing the actual solution. So anything that they might need to put this solution into place, um, IP addresses, uh, descriptions of which version of software to deploy, um, the specific networks to use, all of those things would be great inclusions, in fact, mandatory inclusions for the physical design. But then you get to the various engineers and even architects that are like, you know what, I'm going to start with this particular storage box with this many switch ports and all that kind of jazz. Like that's the starting point. And the argument is like, well, I know this will work. So I'm just going to skip past the conceptual logical and go straight to physical. You know, what, what's kind of the counter argument to that? We've all seen that work, right? It, it, even, in, uh, even in situations where we know the person got lucky, um, there were a number of mistakes that could have happened. They didn't happen. And there was no price to pay for taking this approach to design. But I, I think the important thing to note here is that with any informal or organic approach to design, there are still decisions being made, even if they're not formally being documented. So some of these are going to be based on real information. Some of them are going to be based on assumptions. Some of those are sometimes reckless assumptions that can carry risk to the overall project or the organization. So even if the 
jumping to conclusions approach does solve the immediate need and we're able to save some time and we feel good about that. There's still a need here, I believe, to communicate the value uh, and, and purpose of the solution back to the business. So I would hope and I think overall the bar, the bar is starting to become higher than just it worked well enough when I did it and no one complained so I can consider it a, a success. Um, I think uh, we can do a lot better than that and, and, and we do drive, uh, strive to do better than that, right? Yeah, no one's pissed off. Looks great. Two thumbs up. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Adam, all of that discussion, conceptual, logical, physical, that was all uh, VMware's recommended design process to give us a structured way to build out a virtualization environment in the VMware world. But Amazon, AWS, they also have a design guideline, the well-architected framework. Can you talk us through that? What is the well-architected framework and, and what's it for? Sure. The well-architected framework is a collection of guidance provided by AWS containing recommendations on how to go about architecting on Amazon Web Services. So their design guidance is broken down into five primary areas called pillars. And within each of these pillars, there are a number of design principles and best practices prescribed. So looking at this broadly, a lot of the guidance provided is focused more on globally scalable web applications, but there are portions of uh, the recommendations that are helpful on the infrastructure side as well. It's also helpful to know that if you end up engaging an AWS resource for validation of your architecture, like a solutions architect, these are the criteria that will be uh, kind of used to determine if things have been done correctly on your side or not. So overall, the primary document is about 85 pages worth of reading. I think it's recommended reading for anyone that is planning to leverage that platform. There are also uh, specific documents supporting each of the five pillars as well. So looking sideways at that, some might say, oh, Amazon's just trying to get me to spend extra money on services and, and really it's overkill. You know, from your perspective is the, the well-architected framework that a little bit of a, a you know a tongue-in-cheek sales thing, or is it actually, no, these are solid guidelines that have made good sense to you as you've built out cloud solutions? Well, I won't dispute that I think there's some marketing language or at least a marketing approach used within some of it. So if we look at one of the pillars, uh, cost optimization, one of the design principles is use managed services to reduce cost of ownership. Well, depending on your solution uh, architecture, leveraging one of their managed services instead of something that is self-administered may not actually reduce cost of ownership. However, the, if you're paranoid, the chance of lock-in, quote-unquote, with leveraging those managed services in your applica actual application architecture uh, is higher. So, of course, I think it helps to read this and take some of the advice with a grain of salt, but the, the, piece that, the pieces that really stand out to me as, imp uh, as important are the points that are communicated both in the recommendations provided by VMware and AWS. So when you see that those pieces of information being represented in two places, those sound like good fundamentals that you want to use no matter which uh, platform you're architecting on. And when we look at that VMware recommended design, we talked about conceptual, logical, and physical designs. In the well-architected framework, you've mentioned five pillars. Can we talk through those five pillars, at least at a high level? What are the AWS uh, five pillars, and why are they important in your estimation? Sure. So the five pillars at a high level are operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. Uh, and these are important because they help ensure that all areas of our design or the attributes of our design are fully considered before we end up going live with the solution. And there's a direct parallel between, I, I think, between those pillars and the design qualities on the VMware side, those being availability, manageability, performance, recoverability, and security. And if you're designing a uh, solution that incorporates both, I think they're perfectly valid to to take some recommendations from the reliability pillar and, and on the AWS side and incorporate those into your availability requirements if you're choosing to, to uh, structure your design that way. So there's some overlap there. And um, ultimately, in both cases, this is guidance that help, helps ensure that we're considering all areas of the design. I thought it was interesting that cost optimization is part of the uh, AWS well-architected framework, which is something that a lot of shops have learned the hard way as they've migrated to cloud. Cost optimization has not been a part of their design, and they've quite literally paid a price. 
I love your jokes, Ethan. I actually had a question around, I guess, the knowledge that you have if you're going through kind of that VMware architecture, you know, de design principles. Now you're talking about the well-architected framework from AWS. Do we have to kind of just do a mental flush on what we've learned from design because now it's the cloud? Or is there a lot of commonalities or parallelisms that you can draw from the two different environments? Yeah, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head there. There's a lot of commonality and parallelism that we can uh, draw from there. So a key part of the design really is the non-technical piece where we consider the requirements of our customer and how we're going to go about uh, strategically meeting those requirements. That type of approach applies no matter which type of technology we're incorporating uh, into our design. And at a certain phase, in the conceptual logical phase, the technology that we're working with uh, hasn't even been selected yet. So uh, if we're con just consuming infrastructure as a service components in the, in the public cloud, these are very similar to the concepts of compute, network, and storage that we're already used to accounting for in our virtualized data center designs. So there's not a lot that needs to change there. Uh, in order for us to successfully incorporate these elements into our design. Even if we look at what we talked about previously, there's, there's just a lot of overlap. And where we see that overlap, I think we're provided confirmation that we're working with good design principles. I love the point about asking why. Why are you doing something? Why is this part of the design? Because asking why, is it's a great way to challenge yourself. It makes you think through what this design element is that you've introduced before you have to present this design to other people. As long as you can ask why and have an excellent answer for why, it's probably a good design and something you can fairly bring up to other people. What were your thoughts, Chris? I agree with you, Ethan. I think pushback, feedback, you know, whatever back you want to call it, I think it's a good thing. And if you're not prepared as anyone in architecture, design, engineering, whatever, you know, whatever it is you're doing in tech, if you're not prepared with a good answer, at least a reason as to why you're doing something, it may not even be a good reason. It's just like, ah, oh, this is the best of two bad choices. Then you're going to have some troubles, right? You have to have a clear reason and specific justification for the decisions that you're making. And please do avoid that toxic statement of this is how we've always done things because there's no quicker way to be dead to me than to say something like that. One of our sponsors today is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. In a nutshell, Quest takes the complex things about your Microsoft environment and makes them easier to deal with. For instance, let's say you're dealing with a move to cloud or maybe a merger, or maybe you're doing both at once, what happens? With too much to do, you start making mistakes. You give out more permissions than you should because you have too much to deal with, and sticking that user and that group and that OU wasn't the right thing to do, but it was the convenient thing, and it lets you back to writing that script to help you migrate accounts. Oh, it's just ugly. This is where Quest Software can help. Quest fits in when you're migrating to a new SharePoint or migrating to a new Office 365 environment. You're consolidating Active Directory and Exchange. You're securing Active Directory from insider threats and more. And Quest has been doing this for a long time. They help manage 184 million Active Directory accounts today. Plus, they've migrated over 95 million accounts and 74 million mailboxes. And when you need someone to have your back, Quest's support organization is award-winning. Quest is sponsoring the Experts Conference in Charleston, North Carolina, USA, on August 27th and 28th, 2019. Never heard of the Experts Conference? The Experts Conference is focused on stuff that works in the field. The Experts Conference provides deep Active Directory and Office 365 training that you can apply as soon as your butt hits the chair back in your office. Meet and learn from folks whose books you've read or whose products you've used, such as Randy Franklin Smith, Gil Kirkpatrick, Sean Metcalf, Chris McNulty, and Joel Olson. No, that's stupid. These conferences are always huge, and I'll never get the chance to talk to these folks, you might be saying. And Quest politely suggests that you're wrong about that because the Experts Conference is small compared to the massive shows like Microsoft Ignite. You have the opportunities to ask any questions you may have one-on-one. -on -one. And if you need CPEs, you can earn up to seven CPEs per day at the Experts Conference, and Quest Software can provide you the transcript that you need to submit. If you'd like to attend the Experts Conference, you can get a 50% discount for a limited time only. Visit theexpertsconference.com for more information. And to learn more about Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft, visit quest.com slash datanotspod. One more time, that's quest.com slash datanotspod. And we thank them for being a Datanauts sponsor.
Adam, we focused a lot in this show so far on the design process. Um, we, I think we all kind of get why that's important, right? That that intuitively, instinctively, even if we're lazy and we don't want to go through the process, we get it. We know why it's important and a big deal. Now I want to pick on a favorite topic, design documentation. How important is that through this whole process? I think uh, design documentation is a huge piece of the puzzle here. So uh, in general, though, I think documentation seems to fall by the wayside when things get hectic. Uh, there are resource constraints or other challenges, whether we're talking about engineering level documentation or design documentation, that's a common thing. It, it get, gets looked past. But if we start to understand the value of, uh, of good design documentation, I think it, it will increase in priority on our list uh, because of the nature of our work. Some of it is just in the ether as far as some of our customer executives are concerned. Uh, I believe that uh, design documentation is really one of the most important port, uh, parts of the equation. So a good design document uh, informs not only operations teams on how they should go about working with the solution and what they might need to look out for when administering it, but really what it does is communicate the purpose of the overall solution and the related decisions to the stakeholders that actually made the purchasing decision within the organization. So that helps with perceived value in a number of uh, different areas, in addition to forcing you to be clear about your thinking and your decisions. Now, have you had any trouble when creating documentation and getting people to actually read the stupid things that you've created? Yes. <laughs> put, put, put simply, uh, I try not to let it influence the level of effort I put into those things because I know there will be one or two stakeholders within the organization that do take the time to read it and understand the value there. Um, so that really makes up for any um, others that might not pay uh, as much attention to it. Yeah, but I think it ends up being a two-pronged uh, thing here. Yes, we're creating documentation for other people, but for the same reason some of us write blog posts, it forces us, those of us doing the writing, doing the documenting, to clearly work out our thinking process and understanding exactly what we're doing and why. So there's value, even if no one were to read it, there's a great deal of value in doing that design documentation. I, I think it's just really valuable on all levels. Yes, it's that group communication that you need and have to have, get everybody on the same page, but then also good for you because it forces you to, to ferret out any of the bad thinking that you might have buried in there because you're, you're having to document this thing. I think that's a good point. And certainly something that we've all gone through as consumers of documentation or just really any kind of, you know, written content where you'll find all this marketing crap in there and other sorts of fluffy stuff. And that's kind of the one things that I feel you can offer some purity around is design documentation has a very specific goal. But the question that I have here is, you know, going through the VCDX, the, the, the VMware certified design expert, you, know, you you generate this tome of you know hundreds of you know hundreds of pages of documentation, different plans, all that kind of jazz. Where where do you kind of stop? Like, does everyone have to go like full metal jacket with a BCDX tome of documentation? Can you go a bit lighter? Kind of what do you feel as far as when it comes to creating design documentation is the right amount? Well, I generally think it's a good idea to aim for the highest level of detail possible while still remaining within the project budget. So not, not every customer is going to want to pay for a highly skilled architect to complete a full detailed design. And honestly, it's not even always appropriate, uh, depending on what the solution looks like. But I think you can have success with writing documentation that is done at a reduced level of detail showing, uh, generally speaking, the key requirements, not necessarily all of them, and a logical design showing the relationship between the most important components, uh, a few decision tables outlining the most important uh, decisions that you made, not every setting that, that was changed or every decision that was made has to be fully documented in, in full detail. Uh, and after that, you can just supply... Uh, the resulting configuration in a sensible way in the physical design and have a document that comes out between 30 to 50 pages instead of something that's 100 or more. Uh, it might not be something that will pass a VCDX panel defense, right, or even the initial review, but it's still worlds better than just a simple engineering level document showing that uh, here, here are uh, the things I configured, but not giving any insight into why they were done. Yeah, I think I think you hit it right on the head there. The 
regardless of page count, I think if someone can read your document from a design perspective and not necessarily know like all the little things that you're adjusting, but why you've done what you've done and the justification that we talked about earlier, they can walk away with a good sense of, okay, this person has a good head on their shoulders. I understand why they made the decisions that were made and a few of the the other avenues that could have been explored and why they were ruled out. That feels like it's enough to at least get everyone on my side and understand the design decisions later. Because how many times do you walk into an environment and you're like, this is all horrible, that dog with the burning background drinking coffee. <laughs> you're like, why did the person make these choices? And a lot of that comes down to, yeah, 10 years ago, there just weren't the things that were used to being normal now available. You know, you had to work in a much more constrained type of environment. So I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right if you can express the why and sell that to people that are going to read it. So let's dive into some of the distinctions between different kinds of documentation we might be generating here or confused about. Explain the value of a design document versus an engineering level document. So we touched on this slightly a bit earlier, but the design document is going to be more valuable than the engineering level document for a couple of reasons. So let's start from the perspective of the architect. So a lot can happen in three to five years time. Uh, the way the business operates can change. Uh, employees with tribal knowledge can leave. Uh, things can end up scaling in a way that wasn't initially anticipated. So with a design document, what we have is hopefully a reliable point-in-time view of the organization's goals, as well as the constraints that were present when initially creating the design. So if the previous solution did not end up working well, it's easier to identify why. So do certain applications and data need to be isolated from one another? Uh, do we need to account for additional room for growth on this go-round? Do we need to architect for a higher level of overall availability this time? These are all things that, that we can help decide if we have a, um, a decent design document to reference when we're now introducing the next architecture. So it, it may not be an investment that is uh, that uh, immediately pays you back, but if you're doing this work again in, you know, the next, on the next refresh cycle, three to five years from now, um, you'll definitely be glad you put the effort in now to identify these items. And from the perspective of the customer, I think it's really valuable to, to, to give them an idea of what they're actually getting for the, uh, for the investment. We talked about this a bit ago, but what we do is not always directly visible to the customer. They can go and visit their various data centers and they can look at uh, the infrastructure that has been deployed, but what it actually does and how it's configured and what it's doing for the business is, you know, looking at it is not going to communicate that to them. So a clear, uh, informative document is definitely appreciated by customers. And they can tell, in my experience, they are very appreciative when you're thoughtful and considerate of the requirements and the pain points that, are, that they are communicating to you. In an effort to make that design document clear and consumable, uh, that the hybrid question comes up again. If I've got both virtualization and cloud components, is that confuse things? Do I need to structure the design document in a particular way so that the, the overall design is clear? I don't think so. So again, I'm kind of assuming that we're leveraging infrastructure as a service components here. And if we're starting with a normal virtualized environment as the basis for our design, we might be consuming public cloud provider and using that as our disaster recovery environment. If that's the case, within a typical document, that, that design is just going to plug into a dedicated section uh, within your existing document, and you can continue using the same, the same approach, uh, take those requirements, create a logical design with that, within that section, and um, also transition into the physical design where you're showing how you selected the cloud components that you're going to employ and give justification for why. So when we're still working with infrastructure as a service components, I think those plug in neatly to our existing design approach that we might be using if we have a VMware background. What about for those that are listening and they're like, I'm the crazy person that wants to drive design and everyone else just wants to go straight opening the box, plugging stuff in, beepily boop on the CLI. Uh, I'm an IC, you know, individual contributor. Any advice to how I could actually go about, I don't know, driving some design improvements within the organization? Absolutely. So first, I think it helps to kind of assess how you think your efforts will be received, how you go about doing this 
will play a, <laughs> a big part into, into how you're received, not only by your management, but your peers. So if you're in an environment with rigid standards, the potential for change may not be there in the first place. When I first got started down this path, what I did was just find a good summary of the process I was proposing. I created a template in my own time and uh, containing an appropriate level of detail for the environments I was working with at the time. Took that to my management, uh, explained what I was trying to do and why, and I was able to secure their buy-in. So once you do that, you're kind of going to be seen as the, the person with I don't want to say the authority, but you'll start to be seen as the design SME. And gradually, if not immediately, these responsibilities will come your way. And you can start driving these, these improvements that, in my mind, yield very, very real results, not just for your organization, but for you as the uh, individual contributor, especially if you're dedicated to it. Man, I think my approach has been wrong. I usually run into a room and go, smell my whiteboard marker. My designs are the best. Listen to me. But maybe that's, <laughs> that's wrong. That's how it's we met. Too... <laughs> too too strong? Coming on a little little hard there, maybe? Okay, anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Adam, this has been a great discussion uh, about design. Um, and it's one of those discussions where when you think back as, as an engineer, the role that you might play in design, again, going back to that, this is what I know and this is what I'm going to do because this is what I know. And it's this, this kind of circle that you reinforce yourself that isn't the right answer to the question. You're not even answering the questions. You're just, everything's a, uh, a nail to you because all you've got to hammer. It's not the way to go about it. Design is complicated. It's a complicated process that requires so much upfront thinking to get it right so that you're not paying endless technical debt because of poor decisions that were made when the project went in. Um, so this has been uh, just just a lot of great thinking. Now, Adam, if you got any recommended resources, places you would direct people to if they want to dig into this topic more? Definitely. Um, there are a couple good blog posts I think that will make their way into the show notes. But as far as actual reading material goes, the, uh, the original vSphere design, the, late, the latest edition by Scott Lowe and Forbes Guthrie is still a valuable resource. I think the actual uh, well-architected framework, white papers, the 85-pager and all of the, uh, the, the child white papers are a good source. And um, lately, there's some nice activity going on authorship on the general virtualized IT infrastructure side, one great book to come out of that effort is The Art of IT Infrastructure Design, um, authored by John Arashid and a couple other um, VCDXs. So I highly recommend all of that as good reading material. I think that's a great source of information for everything that we've discussed today. Yeah, and everything you just talked about is a lot to take in and digest uh, if you were to, to apply it all. Lots and lots of information and structure to help with the design process. Now, Adam, people have questions for you or they want to interact. How can they find you online? You can find me on Twitter at, as uh, semi underscore technical. And you can also locate me on my blog, semi-technical.com. Excellent. And thanks again for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, I'd reached out to Adam kind of, it was almost like a cold call going, Hey buddy, you want to be a guest on data knots? And then we ended up having a great back and forth dialogue and, and, uh, and Adam suggested this show, which has just been a wonderful addition to the data knots catalog. Thanks to you for listening. That is it for today's edition of the data knots podcast. If you want to reach me, I'm at EC banks on Twitter. Uh, Chris is at Chris wall. You can find us on our blogs, just a, just a quick internet search away. Uh, we data knots people have these kind of interviews uh, at least a couple times a month talking to people all over the IT industry who are trying to do things better. Uh, we hope to join us next week. And until then, may your server lights blink, your designs be carefully planned, and your cables be cleanly managed.